Welcome to Vale la Pena, in English that's worth your while. I'm your host, Cynthia Rebus. This is a show where we get to do some grassroots philanthropy together. In all episodes, we'll feature nonprofit organizations engaged in inspiring projects for people, animals, and the environment. Some guests will be representatives of those organizations, and they'll share with us more about initiatives they're working on and ways we can participate. Check the show notes for opportunities to impact these humanitarian causes together. You can find this show through my website at www.rebuslegal.com and on YouTube, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Now, please join me for Vale La Pena. Hello! Welcome to Vale La Pena. Thank you for tuning in. If you've been listening, you know our show is committed to grassroots philanthropy. And the idea is very simple. And it's that we can make a bigger impact together. So the way we do it on the show is we have guests and engage in conversation that we hope you will find inspiring and interesting. And in all cases, we spotlight nonprofits. So if you are moved to participate in any way, the show notes will give you all the direct links so you can engage in the nonprofit organizations that we spotlight. Today's guest, I am so very honored to introduce to you, is Dr. Perry Fine. He is a medical doctor, specialty anesthesiology, subspecialty pain medicine, hospice and palliative care. He is also a professor at the School of Medicine at the University of Utah. So without further ado, let's introduce Dr. Fine. Cynthia, I'm delighted to, uh, to meet with you. There's actually no shortage of things to talk about, um, especially with regards to areas that really are in dire need of, uh, of not only understanding, but, but support. But you know, I, I see a piano behind you and um, maybe we should just talk about music. Nothing controversial, just the joyfulness and creativity in, in life, and, but art and medicine and music and medicine go together. So we'll take it where you want to lead it, but I'll um, leave it up to you. But I do see the piano, so I'd love to hear what that's doing there. Well, I have a very expanded notion of humanitarian causes, because again, the show is aimed at forwarding humanitarian causes for people, animals, and the environment. So if we just look at for people, I understand that to be, obviously my heart breaks for the crises of population displacements and um, food insecurity and uh, in all the many crises. And a lot of my other shows focus on injustices in the legal system or issues with animals. And there's just so much work to do. There's also the world of mental health, which brings me to um, what are some of the things that help humans be healthy mentally? And I would say music is top of the list in terms of bringing joy. I myself dabble in piano. It is a, it was a first love. It's always, um, I have issues that I aim to break through around making time to play piano, but it is, um, it is a, it's an activity that is so satisfying in and of itself to create music, to play music, to create music, to write songs, to sing. Um, and so I know that you share that passion and I figured we got to get this podcast in front of a musical situation as opposed to say, uh, my law office, because <laughs> this is the philanthropic arm of my law practice. So we get out of the law office and we come and actually talk to people about issues um but that's why i'm in front of a piano <laughs> well, let, well let's start let's you know let's start on the joyful side with music we can get into the the depths of some of the um more angst uh, 
reading areas in, in a few minutes. But, um, you know, your interest is, is wonderful and, and very timely for me. Um, during COVID, I, I'm a lifelong musician. I've been playing music all my life and, and has, have managed to stick with it through, although as they said, the, the uh, expression that medicine is sort of a jealous um, uh, master is, is, is very true. But I, music has certainly been my sanity um, through a lot. Of, and then when COVID hit, and um, due to my age, I was sort of grounded. Um, I was sort of told the best thing I could do as a physician is not become a patient, which was largely true. Um, but it gave me time to not only reflect on things, but also to catch up on almost 50 years of uh, delayed gratification in some of my musical interests. So I completed a symphony, which was actually going to be um, uh, performed uh, next Oh, sort of around the um, the, the holiday season uh, for various reasons, and then also a musical. I wanted to write something very uplifting, and musical theater is, you know, but in the meantime, um, a new initiative I've taken on at the University of Utah is to bring in um, a, uh, a very new formed uh, group, the Utah Medical Orchestra, it's being called at the moment. Um, there actually is a national association of medical orchestras, because there's a lot of people in health sciences, uh, not just physicians, but health sciences, who um, are also musicians and are looking for an outlet. And from a mental health standpoint, from a community standpoint, um, it's a tremendously important outlet. So we're bringing this actually, working to bring this into the home base to actually be the Department of Anesthesiology, which is a kind of a weird place to have a home for an orchestra. Um, but, you know, we offered, I can be the faculty sponsor, it's largely a student um, organization, but also with um, faculty and staff of the 10,000 people, faculty, staff, students, trainees, all levels within the health sciences um, uh, uh, at the University of Utah. There's a lot of extraordinary talent. And um, we're actually bringing it in as a wellness project. So that's the punchline. Um, so the chairman of our department believes very strongly in the importance of bringing wellness um, into um, uh, not only for our students, but also faculty and staff. So that'll be sort of the end of my um, musical um, exposition, but it's, uh, it's a very timely thing, and it's actually something I'm spending a lot of my, my time on these days. Well, I just want to say, um, and this is very special, we haven't had a nonprofit of this type but one of the nonprofits that we're linking will be the Grand Theater in Salt Lake City. And they are a community theater. And like so many theaters, uh, would really benefit from your support if you are inclined, speaking to listeners, um, to participate. And they are the theater that will be showcasing your work. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Yes. They're going to be um, the, 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 the world premiere of the musical Fate with a question mark at the end of it. Um, will be actually exactly a year from now, mid-February through mid-March at the Grand Theater, which is a venerable old theater, 100-year-old, beautiful theater attached to the um, uh, the community college um, in downtown Salt Lake City. And of course, it's a not-for-profit and it it uh, works through grants and, um, um, and then it supports new productions as well as older ones. Right now, the 39 Steps, which is a sort of a classic is going on, but... Um, the fate will be there a year from now. So I'm very excited about, about that, obviously. Congratulations. That's fantastic. And I'm going to have to make my way to Salt Lake City and go see fate with a question well, mark. It's a rock, it's a rock musical, at, you know, in the, in the um, sort of, sort of rekindling the days of hair and Jesus Christ superstar and those types of musicals. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. We workshopped it um, at another theater, the Alliance theater last May with a hundred you know, spectators to sort of give feedback, um, a, a true workshop and uh, it went over very well. So the grand decided to pick it up as a full stage production. So yeah, everybody come to Salt Lake City and um, uh, you know, we, we should be finished with, um, I think this weekend is, is the NBA's all-star weekend here in Salt Lake. So we've got a hundred thousand people flocking wow. to Utah for something as, as um, as exciting as NBA basketball. So let's do it for musical theater as well. Okay, that's fantastic. All right. Okay, then changing from all this joyfulness that music provides um, 
talk to us a little bit about hospice. What What is that for people who don't know what that may be? Well, you know, hospice actually goes back centuries in, in uh, human history through um, Europe and the, the Middle East um, as a concept of a place where a place where people would go who had um, terminal illness to be. Well, actually, it was, comes out of sort of hoteling and place where people could go for uh, san- um, sanctuary um, as it evolved in more modern times. And then um, out of Dame Cicely Saunders work in, in England. Um, at St. Christopher's, which was sort of the first um, sort of recognized modern um, inpatient hospice center um, where patients at that point with terminal cancer could go and, and be cared for rather than backwarded in hospitals where they could access uh, pain control um, and uh, be involved in more social activities and live well until they died. Um, in the United States, the um, uh, there was a movement towards more home-based hospice that began um, in the 1970s, um, uh, largely around um, some religious orders and um, all charitable. And then when the um, HIV um, uh, uh, epidemic struck, there was certainly a need for for end-of-life care. Um, uh, There's a large population of people um, who unfortunately at that time when HIV was a terminal illness and, and um, just rife with, with uh, uh, horrible side effects and, and, uh, and a whole you know, uh, constituency of, of, um, of uh, uh, I'm trying to put this non, in a non-vulgar way, but just bodily functions that just went totally awry. And they needed a lot of care, a lot of personal care. And um, so the movement really acceler- accelerated then in places like L.A., San Francisco, New York. Um, and uh, some demonstration projects were underway. And interestingly, maybe one of the, the last great pieces of bi- truly bipartisan um, legislation, almost with unanimity, um, ironically, and I don't mean to give away my political uh, positions here so much, but it's almost unavoidable, but during the Reagan administration, um, he signed, President Reagan signed off in 1982 on the Medicare hospice benefit. So um, hospice became actually a part of the um, American sort of, well, this disorganizes is the American health system writ large, or at least underwritten by Medicare. So it's sort of right at this point and still has been over the last 40 years, probably the best kept secret in American healthcare, because it's completely covered either under um, people already are covered under Medicare, or, you know, people typically over 65, or um, Medicare, Social, uh, Social Security, in which case people who have terminal illness are almost all qualified. So there's almost nobody who has a chronic progressive disease with a life expectancy of, of six months or less, so months rather than years, who doesn't qualify for this kind of interdisciplinary care, um, largely provided at home by nurses, supported by physicians, um, counseling, chaplaincy, if people want it, um, and social work and support to help with things, all the paperwork and financing and all the things that people worry about as they're sort of closing out their, their lives. But largely it's about symptom management and helping people to live as well as they can and support their families um, uh, throughout the last weeks, months um, of their lives. Why, why do you say it's a secret it's highly underutilized. Um, of the, if you sort of multiply the number of people who who die of um, uh, sort of under well understood chronic progressive diseases, you know, cardiovascular disease, stroke, heart failure, cancer, um, advanced cancers, uh, neurological diseases, and so forth, um, <clears throat> that accounts for about eighty <clears> percent <throat> of the people. Who die every year in the country. The remaining are um, people who die rapidly, acutely, without um, having had the expectation of um, succumbing to a chronic progressive illness. You know, trauma, um, sudden massive heart attack that was not foreseeable. Um, uh, you know, obviously homicide, suicide, which are big issues. But still, that leaves 80% of the population. Um, and 80% of those individuals are over 65. Obviously, the most tragic thing imaginable are the 1% of people who die every year in this country who are kids, 
And that's probably the most difficult area of hospice care is to deal with children who are, we know are, um, you know, whose lives are measured in, in days, weeks, or months. But that's really the, sort of the spectrum of, of people who would benefit from this type of care. But if you sort of add it all up, only about, well, as of the last calculations I've done and, and written about, only three to 5% of hospice days available under coverage and benefit. And by the way, most commercial insurances for people who are not covered under Medicare also cover hospice care, but only about three to 5% of those available coverage days are utilized by patients who otherwise would benefit. Meaning you know, that 95% of the time in people's lives or the days that are people, and which means a lot of people may not get it, about 50% now of people, at least in the Medicare population who die every year, get at least one day of hospice care. But in order to really organize care um, and, and help people get the, the most out of what it can be, it really takes not only several days, but weeks sometimes to get people organized so that they can actually live as well as they can. And one other thing I'll interject here um, is that it's been well studied and well proven that people who actually um, access hospice care earlier in the course of their disease actually live live not only longer, and some people really aren't looking to live longer, but most people are, want to live longer, but also live better. The quality of their lives goes dramatically up. If you relieve symptoms, if you make sure pain is controlled, nausea, vomiting, other bowel issues, um, um, dementia issues, um, you name it, um, feeding issues, all the skin issues, all the things that accompany advanced illness, people live longer and much better. So when I say it's sort of the best kept secret, it's, it's really not sort of, it's a nice trivial sort of throwaway line, but it's actually quite profound if you consider it. Well, and after this podcast, it's not going to be a secret. <laughs> We're getting Yay. the word you, you, out there. Yay, Cynthia. Where's my camera? Very um, oolong tea to you. Yeah. Well, I get great listeners. I'm sure they're all going to, you know, be looking into. It's just a curious thing. I don't know if it's a matter of people don't explore the benefits because it's just complicated to figure out what the benefits are. Oh, it's it's there's there's a lot of mitigating factors um, um, or, you know, things that. You know, first of all, we don't. Nobody likes to think about terminality or mortality or death. I mean, this is, you know, an age-old issue. It, it it didn't begin or end in any generation, including our own, no less going forward. Um, um, and it's it's problematic because unless people plan, things happen regardless. I mean, it's you know, it's like an avalanche. You really can't stop it. And and um, until you really organize your life around thinking through what's going to happen and getting your family members and your, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people don't have a primary care physician. Um, there's a lot, you know, this is a very vulnerable population that um, oftentimes is poorly represented and, and um, you know, amidst other very obvious inequities in, in medicine and healthcare in our country, this is a big, big part of it. Um, but I guess this would be a plea for everybody for their own sake and their family members, if they want to avoid totally bankrupting their family, because it's uh, studies have looked at uh, the results of, of, of um, people who don't plan well, and that's a majority of people, but something on the order of 50% of, of um, families who go through a the dying of a family member, whether it's a, um, you know, mother, father, sister, brother, somebody close to them who they have some responsibility for, but usually first first order family members basically spend down all of their life savings taking care of that person on a lot of things that are in fact not beneficial, um, either um, or just trying sort of pushing away the inevitable, prolonging dying in a uh, rather than supporting quality living. And um, it takes a lot of forethought, and uh, it's it's a difficult topic. Uh, we always sort of say, you know, this is not something that you want to necessarily ruin your Thanksgiving talking about. But there are only a few times a year where people get around the table all together, and it's a tough one. But um, there's a lot of you can search for these kinds of things, how to break the ice, and talk about these things online. Um, and there are organizations that help people through this um, uh, difficult conversations and the Conversation Project and things like this. But um, 
anyway, it does really take planning and written and written directive. So people aren't guessing, uh, you know, the default if people go to the hospital and don't have a directive is, you know, everybody, everybody throws everything at them because people feel there's a liability issue. And in the end, um, our health systems are, um, are stressed financially. Resources get directed towards futility rather than towards meaningful, helpful care in those sorts of ways. So it's very complicated, many moving parts, but um, it's really up to us, us and our individuals and people when we still have a few neurons left you know, that are working. That's the time to figure stuff out, not um, when, it's, when we're sort of no longer in control of our own lives. Well, there's so much I want to speak to there that you mentioned. One that I can relate to as a lawyer as I do a lot of estate planning, and it's a similar thing where families have difficulty sometimes just having the conversations um, in order to get the planning going so that the intentions of how to take care of each other and then pass wealth um, can be fulfilled. But we have to have those conversations. So that's what we're doing. We're encouraging, talking about things that matter. That's what we're doing. <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it's really is, you know, our national organizations helpful. Yeah, they can be, but really always most like mostly it boils down to locally what's in your community. And quite frankly, there's a, a tremendous amount of disparity amongst hospice programs. Under Medicare, they are, the Medicare certification is something definite to look for because there are standards. Um, but still with that, there's a lot of variability. So word of mouth is really important. Talk to other people. If, you know, if, if you know, your, your spouse, your loved one, your friend, your brother, your sister, your aunt, uncle, mother, father is diagnosed with a condition that, in fact, um, appears to, to be incurable, that's the time to start looking and interviewing um, uh, programs and see what do you offer, what um, what limitations do you have, um, uh, what's covered under Medicare. You know, people should seek out the Medicare hospice benefit on the web under Medicare, and they can get all look and see what um, what should be offered and make sure their hospice programs do it. I will recommend, um, even has nothing to do with Utah where I, I reside, but one of the I think the most forward thinking programs in the country actually is in. Um, you know, out of a little town in Arthurdale, West Virginia. Um, and West Virginia has a host of social issues and problems and all sorts of wonderfulness. It's a, you know, it's an extraordinary and um, beautiful state and um, with tremendous resources, but also has some, one of the oldest aging populations in the country, um, has a lot of chronic illness, largely left over from and still going on with coal mining and all sorts of things. Um, but uh, West Virginia caring and uh, WV, West Virginia, WVCaring.org um, is, uh, is a website. And they refuse care to no one. They take care of anyone, anywhere, um, and are trying to accommodate people where they're at um, throughout all sorts of rural areas of West Virginia that, <clears throat> that maybe as the crow flies, maybe only be 40 miles, but might take two hours to get there over mountain roads. Um, so uh, this is an organization really worth um, supporting if you uh, feel like, um, you know, you're uh, you know, supporting an organization where you know that every penny that you donate will go directly to helping somebody's life be better. That's one I would strongly recommend. Great. We'll definitely include them in the show notes. Great. All right. Well, I know another specialty of yours is pain medicine and pain management. Talk to us about that. Well, I tell you what, <clears throat> let's dive in to the deep end head first. I've got this little piece of paper here that I wrote down a quote from as I was looking through the news today. Um, <clears throat> and I think you'll get a sense of one of my big social concerns in the area of pain medicine. This was a uh, published today in USA Today. Um, uh, by Singer and Bloom, and uh, uh, here's 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 sort of the the the, the headline um, as they sort of laid out. Thanks to pressure from lawmakers, government agencies, and policymakers, who inserted themselves into the patient-doctor relationship, patients 
um, uh, became the victims of the never-ending war on drugs. And what they're referring to is um, uh, sort of the opioid crisis as it's played out, where the, the you know, the, the um, abuse uh, and addiction communities, obviously nobody should belittle or marginalize the, 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 the toll that drug abuse has, been ta- has taken on people's lives throughout history, but accelerated in the last 10, 15 years um, as opioids became sort of the, the drug of choice. We went from, you know, in the first 20 years of my career, um, you know, cocaine, methamphetamine, hallucinogens were sort of the, uh, the, the drugs du jour. And then in the early part of the 20th, 21st century, opioids became more available as um, uh, concerns about undertreatment, especially of patients with uh, cancer pain, became a big public health effort. Um, uh, and so people sort of became more aware of those. And so pharmaceutical um, availability did increase. But as it turns out, the, the overlap of people with legitimate, if you will, or credible um, medical need for, uh, with intractable pain conditions, um, uh, who had a, uh, where opioids are an irreplaceable part of the, the toolbox. It's certainly not all there is. There's a lot of other things, and they certainly opioids should never be prescribed without sort of a comprehensive understanding of the patient and close monitoring and follow-up, just like we would with chemotherapy or any other um, area in medicine where there's tremendous benefit but also potential for tremendous risk. But as a result of abuse, misuse, um, and a perfect storm of um, a lot of components under um, coverage by uh, insurance companies that would not cover comprehensive care, care, inadequate education at the undergraduate and graduate levels in medical training. Simply, pain is one of the biggest public health problems we have. And in fact, I'll back up a second. And it'll surprise probably your listeners and maybe you, Cynthia, although I think you've probably heard it all and nothing would surprise you anymore. But if you add up the direct and indirect costs of of, uh, pain and persistent or recurrent pain as a driver in healthcare, people who are suffering this and the costs of both missed work as well as medical care and so forth, the the overall cost to our um, annual um, GDP, the annual budget of the country, expenditures, exceeds cancer, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. Each one of those, which are mammoth, but that's exceeded by, by pain. And pain is pretty much the number one reason people seek medical care. It's a huge problem. Um, and, uh, and we've got a long way to go to get better at understanding medically, scientifically, and safe ways of treating pain. But the point that this article made, and which is uh, something that's been clearly on my mind over the last decade, is how uh, patients who really have credible and and important critical medical need for pain management and where opioids play a role have been completely marginalized and have been, um, in fact, and have suffered enormously. And the suicide rates for patients with chronic pain conditions have skyrocketed. It's not been talked about, poorly publicized. People are largely unaware of this. Um, So it's sort of a hidden epidemic. Um, And since all of the efforts to um, curb the, quote, opioid epidemic started up about a a decade ago, um, the net result has been not a reduction in opioid-related mortality and opioid overdoses and deaths, it's actually doubled. So, you know, it's clearly not coming and and opioid prescribing has been strongly curtailed because of fears of prescribers um, uh, shutting down of pharmacies, refusing to prescribe opioids, refusing to dispense them, uh, fears of litigation, of being sued, all that stuff. That hasn't been the driver. The driver has been continued to be abuse. Now, Clearly, it's moved, we moved away from availability of, of prescription opioids now to um, black market, and especially fentanyl. And now 
fentanyl is lacing everything and there's been a big resurgence of methamphetamine um, uh, being laced with fentanyl. But those deaths have, have skyrocketed. And so with, who's been left behind? The patient with um, a, a debilitating, intractable pain problem and the physician who wants to take care of them has been left oftentimes without the tools to do so. So that's, sorry, I'm on my soapbox here, but <clears throat> but it was very timely because that article came out. And I would say that, you know, if you look at the perfect storm of why this happened, <clears throat> certainly uh, the zealots in the addiction community thought that it was all pain that was driving this and the people who were trying to be proponents for and advocates for patients with pain, um, those individuals end up having with no accountability now for their actions have really caused tremendous damage to that population. Um, so we have, you know, misinformed patient advocates who thought that they were saving the world um, from, uh, from quote, opioid addiction. And all they were doing <clears throat> was leading people to suffer horrible lives um, without help. Um, and then last but not least, um, Cynthia, maybe you can speak to this a little bit um, <clears throat> from your your perspective in a, as a legal professional, but this became a tremendous boon for the uh, for mass tort, tort law firms, who saw this as being an opportunity, like the tobacco litigation, to um, basically create a case that <clears throat> opioids had no value and no purpose, um, and were only harmful, and then could create discovery and and um, look for malfeasance within pharmaceutical companies. And believe me, there's there's no shortage of, of uh, I think, you know, there's plenty of little smoking guns within the uh, um, uh, drug companies, just like there has been within uh, the tobacco industry. The difference is that opioids do have a critical therapeutic role to play um, and um, have been prescribed safely for millions of individuals who don't become addicts, who don't get into trouble, but it does require education, knowledge, skills, and a practice and structured practice environment where you can manage this care effectively and safely. I'll take a breath um, because that's sort of a long, just expository uh, uh, and let you um, sort of poke away at some of these arguments or, or see what other things you might find um, to talk about here. Well, I'm interested in how the U.S. is doing in terms of the opioid crisis as compared with other parts of the world. Is there an increase in addictions and deaths that are correlated with opioid abuse everywhere? or Not nearly what we found in, in the United States, which is actually a, a really important and, and really, um, not to butter up the host here, but, but that's a really an insightful question because in other countries that have um, not necessarily have been as open to prescribing, uh, um, but certainly have not been horribly restrictive, there has not been um, the, the, you know, the mortality and the opioid deaths and um, people dabbling and in spite of knowing how harmful it can be if you don't aren't in a controlled medical environment or prescribed and use only as directed and those sorts of things. The United States really is an outlier. And, you know, sociologists have started to look at this and I've, I've, I've been thinking about this for a long time and um, we sort of have created a category of, of sort of deaths of despair. You know, what's going on in the United States that have led people to feel that life, you know, without being altered, but um, in an altered state, I'm not talking about pain management now, I'm, that population can be managed effectively, but the, 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 the um, multiples of individuals who are misusing, abusing, um, taking their grand, you know, stuff from the medicine cabinet prescribed from others, going to parties and just taking handfuls of pills, um, obviously theft and, you know, and all that. And, and then the whole black market that's built up um, um, of uh, fentanyl products from, from that have been imported. You know, what leads people to feel um, they're willing to basically play Russian roulette every day? I don't have an answer for that, but I do believe that um, it, it requires a, a lot more reflection and, um, and real failure, I think. Um, not that government is the answer for everything, but if we look as, 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 um, at government as being sort of the, the primary 
sort of unifying entity um, that looks after those potential harms that can bring down a society, and um, whether it's from, you know, uh, 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 you know, military efforts from afar or whatever, the things that we always sort of conventionally think about. Um, you know, we're killing ourselves at a rate much greater than and our worst enemies could imagine doing to us. And it's all self-inflicted because people don't see their lives as particularly potentially valuable enough. They don't feel connected. Um, there's a whole lot of, a lot of reasons for that. The news over the last couple of days, I'm sure your listenership has been hearing, is that one out of every three teenage girls has entertained suicide in the last year. Um, so, you know, mental health and feeling sort of the life reflex that we're sort of born with has dissipated. And um, this is just a, you know, maybe a, a very strong signal. And this is maybe the mechanism by which people um, try and relieve their psychic pain, their their existential suffering by using um, these drugs and then ultimately overdosing. Um, but we do, you know, uh, again, a bigger issue than we have answers for in this discussion, but at least want to, it should be raised to people's attention. And the, the least of us to be victims of all of this should be somebody who has a medical condition that now we push them towards suicide rather than pushing them towards living a life that feels um, ample enough to want to wake up in a day after day after day um, because their pain is no longer so so severe and and uh, and um, and distressing and life limiting. Well, this little podcast has big ambitions, and one of them is that by talking about these issues and coming up with opportunities for people to participate, some of that might help give people uh, ways to connect because we definitely have problems with isolationism um, and <clears throat> everything I see are just skyrocketing levels of depression and suicide ideation. And I think the pandemic with all of the shutdowns made some of that worse. Um, but we've had issues of connecting. You know, I think the technology plays a role, keeps us, you know, even when we go to board meetings, people are looking at their phone and not talking to who's in the room. Um, <laughs> uh, we get a lot of factors that are affecting our ability to be with one another. Um, so, Part of what the show notes aim to do also is give people opportunities of obviously financial donations are uh, welcomed, but also many of these organizations that we highlight also provide many opportunities for people to participate on a volunteer basis. Because um, I think as this particular podcast has really shown, we're also multifaceted, you know, music plays a role in our lives, our professions play a role in our lives, and, and we all care to make a difference and get out there and do something. Um, back to the opioid crisis and or pain management, is there somebody doing anything right out there? Like, um, who would, who could we look to to learn in terms of solutions that might help us start to tackle the problem? Well, you know, in everything sort of in micro ways, you know, certainly at the University of Utah, our division of pain medicine um, is vibrant. Um, when I started, I was the second faculty member who had a special interest and had gone away and done a fellowship and trained specifically in pain medicine and then came back and was recruited back to the University of Utah. It's, it's a little over 40 years ago now. Um, specifically to develop the pain program. I now have, um, we now have uh, the, the, the person who preceded me is retired. So I'm now the senior, sort of the senior guy. I still do see a small group of patients with chronic um, bad diseases where pain is a big problem. Um, but I'm the oldest guy by 20 years. I'm 70. The next person in line is 50. So we've got a whole generational gap. But after that, between say ages 35 and 50, we now have a faculty of 12 physicians, plus nurse practitioners, plus psychologists, behavioral specialists, um, physical med um, medicine folks, 
um, functional restoration, physical therapist. So we work in this interdisciplinary um, way to help people rebuild their lives. Um, so we integrate medical, behavioral, functional. Um, we don't get a lot into spiritual issues because that's sort of not our thing, but that could certainly play a big role, like it does in hospice. Because um, people do ask those questions, why me? And, you know, is there you know something out there bigger than me or is it just me? And you know, all these sort of existential questions. But we just pretty much try and um, help people uh, to find life worthwhile by focusing um, on relieving their pain to the extent we can and then helping them to rebuild their lives. These programs like ours are very far and few between. There used to be a lot more of them. Insurance carriers basically swept them away, said it's not worth a while because everybody looks at um, uh, immediate returns rather than long-term. And this is a long-term investment. And, you know, what happened in our healthcare systems is, you know, you might be a, a uh, you know, your carrier might be company X this year and company Y next year and company Z next year. So there's really no long-term investment in preventing the kind of costs associated with poor treatment of conditions like chronic pain. Um, so these kind of interdisciplinary programs have largely been swept away. And uh, that's a big problem. But there are other programs. Um, my colleague, Scott Fishman, Dr. Fishman, and he's a professor at, um, at University of California, Davis, is avidly working. Uh, uh, he's a pain medicine specialist, but he's now working through um, on uh, education programs to try and help primary care physicians be far more knowledgeable and skilled at managing, diagnosing and treating, and early recognition of pain problems that may become intractable and getting early intervention. He's working now um, with the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, which some would say was part of the problem because they created some guidelines that were horribly misinterpreted that um, con that was added to some of these problems that pain patients have. They've tried to rectify some of this, but they're actually interested in some of the um, maybe broad-reaching national education programs to help um, with knowledge and education and skills. Um, and uh, we're looking to be part of that. University of Utah with, um, uh, this is sort of not, um, uh, it's in the early phases of development now, but some um, centers of excellence around the country. Um, but there are programs like that that are now blooming, but it's largely out of some, you know, very strong held um, uh, uh, motivations by certain individuals. I, I think that the whole area of pain medicine um, really skidded to a horrible um, abrupt halt with the opioid crisis. Everything that was attached to pain was attached to opioids and everybody sort of ran away from it. And um, the... And that just basically it destroyed a lot of the professional organizations. There was an organization called the American um, Pain Society that was interdisciplinary medicine and research and, and nurses and social work, et cetera. That basically um, they became uh, named um, defendants in lawsuits with no justifiable reason whatsoever, other than as a strategy for, um, uh, uh, you know, um, a big, in my view, a big payday by the um, litigants, um, without regard for the, the, you know, the, the, you know, the sort of related damage that it could do. So that organization's dead. It died three, four, five years ago, and that was a group that was avidly interested in and helped try to develop policy. You know, <clears throat> most of it had nothing to do with opioids. It was around all the things we're talking about, how to help people rebuild their lives and um, and to connect with uh, <clears throat> with health and wellness rather than with, <clears throat> you know, waiting until people were so sick um, and there was no, you know, and, and leading to hopelessness. So that organization died. The American Academy of Pain Medicine, which is largely physicians, and I was sort of one of the sort of founding members way back when, um, uh, that organization has struggled and, and um, has almost gone bankrupt and for similar reasons is trying to rebuild itself. And uh, um, but anyway, um, I think we've gone way off the rails as far as helpful um, you know, policies that could be helpful. And COVID really, sadly, it wasn't the um, I think everybody's now it's blame everything on COVID. These problems existed 
before COVID three, it wasn't just three years ago, this, these issues came up, but COVID, I think, as you were alluding to, iced the cake. It created a lot more isolation. Um, funding for things went to other directions, much of it, well, much, very much needed, but it was, it was um, in a way, a distraction um, from the other key issues that we're facing, we're facing and this sort of culture of, uh, of, uh, of uh, despair that had sort of taken over in many ways. Um, but, you know, I'll, I will make one comment that's an observational one. I'm not a politician. I have no interest in being one. Um, uh, I, I love being a physician. I love seeing closing the door and trying to help a person rebuild their lives in one way or another. But I think our politicians um, have really dropped the ball on this. You know, this is not a, these are not partisan issues. There's, there's nothing partisan about this. Um, it's not liberal. It's not conservative. It's not left. It's right. right. It's not, um, you know, if, if, you know, <clears throat> valuing people lives um, to the extent that we can and living as well as we can <clears throat> is somehow radical, then boy, you know, <laughs> we are living in a radical time, but um, uh, it's just, but it's complicated and it really takes time and effort and it's not sexy. It's just, you know, grassroots work at trying to understand people and helping communities figure out ways of not spending more, but taking the resources and allocating them in ways that can be helpful. And, you know, there are a lot of aspects of this homelessness, you know, um, obviously substance abuse, which we've talked about, and there's an intersection, mental health, and there's an intersection, and underemployment and under, um, you know, compensation. So you can work three jobs and still not be able to raise a family, all these things. Um, so anyway, uh, it all does impact on medicine. Our hospitals become overwhelmed, our healthcare systems, because we catch people in the extremes rather than, um, uh, you know, in the beginning. And preventative medicine is not sexy. You know, it's not heroic. Um, you know, you never you never put out the fire that never starts, right? But anyway, you get you get the drift of where I'm going with this, I guess. Right. But I like that I, metaphor of the fire. I do think there is, I like also the interdisciplinary approach. I do think we need to be working on figuring out how to keep people's sense of self and spirit thriving, you know, a greater respect of life. This, what you refer to as deaths of despair, that's a whole other sort of quiet tragedy in our midst that we're living with. And there may be things we can do in terms of, um, short of obviously expertise at your level, but even just, as you mentioned, nonpartisan, but public health concerns, person to person issues, community efforts. Um, I know, you know, in terms of homelessness here in Los Angeles, where I live, that is a grave issue and very complicated issue and where they're finding best success is when they have interdisciplinary teams looking at the various components of how and why it is that we have so many people living on our streets. Um, well, Dr. Fine, I can't possibly thank you enough for giving us some of your time today. Do you have any final words that you would like to say in closing? Well, yeah, I, I don't want to leave everybody feeling like this is hopeless, and I, I still am smiling. I'm a maybe a pathological optimist here. <clears throat> you know, I do see hope. I do see some rays of sunshine here and then. You know, <clears throat> and where I see it is because I, you know, if you open your eyes, there are a lot of people who are very interested in 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 um, trying to re rebirth community. Um, I'm not sure what the most bite-sized piece would be. But, you know, as soon as there's more than one person in my family, there's five opinions. Um, but we've got to learn how to, you know, not kill each other over those opinions. Um, but, you know, maybe with the expansion of our societies, more urban, you know, it's not an urban problem. Clearly, it's a rural problem, too. And, and in fact, some of the rural areas in this country are the most hard hit by this stuff. But I, I want to bring this back to what we started with, which is the arts and creativity. I think one of the most uh, the most extraordinarily healing aspects of, of of what human beings uniquely have 
is um, with, without necessarily having special skills as an artist or musician, we're all creative. Everybody has a story to tell. Um, everybody can draw a picture. Everybody can play the most basic, you know, um, you know, we start kids on, on little flutophones, you know. Um, everybody can do something, and it does bring joy. And it sounds superficial and trite, and, but um, I would just encourage everybody to take a step back and think, you know, what can they do? You know, we talk about journaling and all this stuff, but, you know, that's sort of, you know, we get so narcissistic and, you know, you know, belly button gazing and stuff. Just express, you know, figure out a way of spending 15 minutes a day even just like exercise, you know, it's not, you know, obviously diet and exercise, we always talk about it, but how do you help people get there? Um, but uh, I would say the third spoke of that, uh, or, you know, leg of that stool would be do something, do something creative that just feels good. It's not like practicing a violin or your sounds horrible and you're doing scales or something, just do something that feels good. And all of a sudden when you realize this is another really wonderful aspect of being a human being is that time, it truly is relative. When you're doing something joyful, time passes by and you don't even know you're, that's the zone, right? When you're suffering, time takes for every second of the clock, like Ingmar Bergman in his, you know, existential films, you're every tick of the clock. So figure out something to do that takes you outside of yourself and creative ventures, I think is, is one. And even if you don't want to do something yourself, then there are a lot of community theaters and and musical events or whatever. But anyway, that's my, uh, you know, humble words of wisdom, for, you know, to take with you. But thank you. Say, thank you, Cynthia. I really appreciate the time meeting with you and your listenership. I hope people got something out of this. I really do. Thank you so much to everyone listening. Thank you, Dr. Fine. Um, I hope it's been worth your while. And thanks for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in to Vale La Pena. Please join us in making an impact together for people, animals, and the environment. Details in the show notes. You can find this show through my website at www.rebuslegal.com and on YouTube, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. I'm your host, Cynthia Rebus, and I welcome and thank you for your feedback, comments, questions, and sharing this show with others.